As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, the big story in markets, up until relatively recently, has been the bond sell-off. Like, quite a dramatic sell-off across the fixed income space. Yeah, really over, like, I guess is the last couple months. So, the yield today, well, we can sort of talk about the bond market up until today. But, you know, we had been, like, in the threes and the fours. And then we got as, uh, almost as high as 4.9% on the 10-year. We've had a little bit of a pullback. We're recording this October 10th. But we are very high by any recent standards. Yeah, it is not lost on me that we are recording our bond sell-off episode on the day when treasuries are recording their best one-day performance since, since I think, March of last year. <laughs> but, you know, we're trying. We're trying here. But you're right. The recent bond market sell-off, it was one of those times when you see a lot of superlatives around yes. a lot of, like, highest yields since 2007, a lot of talk of standard deviation moves when we try to start calculating, you know, how many trading days it would, normal yeah. trading days it would take to get moves of this size. But the interesting thing about this whole dynamic is it's not really clear what the proximate cause of the sell-off is. Right. So you have a lot of people blaming, you know, the recent FOMC meeting when they released the dot plot showing higher for longer. You have some people blaming oil. You have people talking about supply. Yeah. Some people are looking at more technical aspects. You have some people blaming the term premium, which I find absolutely hilarious because to me, a higher term premium is like a symptom of the sell-off, not the actual driver of it. But anyway, all of this means we really need to try to get into the weeds of what is happening here and what it might mean for the wider market. Right. Because even if, okay, maybe maybe last Friday, right after that jobs report, when we got that very brief spike, maybe that was the peak, who knows. But I do think it's important to like try to disambiguate these things. Because as you said, like I guess it's one of those things when there is a lot of explanations for something, none of them are like very satisfying. Like a lot of deficit talk lately. But it's like, what? Like, yeah, we, didn't we, we all knew. That. I think yeah. we knew that the deficit was really big for a long time. There was that recent Fed meeting. But again, OK, like the 2024 dots came up a little bit. But does that really Not explain 4.9% yeah. on the 10-year? Nothing is quite satisfying as to what happened and exactly. why we're at this sort of like new level where we're at. 
Exactly. Well put. So today, I am very pleased to say we do, in fact, have the perfect guest. We're going to be speaking to a Bond analyst. I've been a fan of his research for a long time. He used to work with one of our other favorite Odd Lots guests, Josh Younger. We're going to be speaking with Jay Barry. He is the co-head of U.S. interest rate strategy at J.P. Morgan. We're going to be trying to get a handle on what might be driving the moves in bonds, but also how you go about as an analyst Mm. trying to disaggregate all these different factors. So I'm very excited. Jay, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Tracy, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate being here. So I guess maybe just to begin with, I mean, the simple question, what is driving the (laughs) sell-off? We'll start there and then we can try to dig into different pieces. Well, I mean, Joe just said there's a whole host of reasons that have been bantered about and that maybe none of them are all satisfying, but I really think it's the confluence of a number of different factors here. So, I mean, in aggregate, now we're off the highs in yield, as you said, but we're still about 100 basis points higher than we were in the middle of the summer. And to me, it's like, what's changed over that period? And I think the early part of the move, you could say, was definitively a story about the U.S. economy and fundamentals, because I look back at where we were very early in the summer and where we are right now. And over that period, we increased our second half growth expectations at J.P. Morgan by about two and a half percentage points. Mm from like the mildest of recessions, if you can call it that, to looking for above trend growth the second half of this year. And that's like a meaningful driver, I think, of the move in long-term rates, because it's given us more confidence that the recession may be a bit further off, but it's also helped sort of anchor Fed expectations at higher levels as well. So, you know, we haven't really changed the expected peak in the Fed funds rate since the early part of the summer, but we pushed out the timing Hmm. and we pushed it out from, you know, at that time thinking it was going to happen around now to sort of pushing it out to the early part of next year. But then the more powerful influence is that we've disinverted that money market Mm. curve a bit. And that, you know, early in the summer, we were pricing about 150 basis points of cuts for 2024. Now we're pricing in still cuts, but we've taken out about 40% of that. So I think the first part was fundamental, but then I think the drivers began to shift. And Mm. more recently, since September, you know, Fed and growth expectations have been pretty stable. But inflation expectations have been rising. And we like to look at five-year-ahead, five-year inflation expectations from the TIPS market, from the inflation-linked treasury market. And those break-even expectations have gone higher by about 25 basis points over the past six weeks. Wait, this is the five-year, five-year forward break-even? Is that the exactly. thing that you like to look mm-hmm. at? And I'll bring that up on my, uh, uh, my terminal while you're talking about it. So I understand, okay, growth has picked up or versus expectation, certainly compared to the beginning of the year when, as you say, like almost everyone expected recession. Now we're at above trend growth. Maybe it'll moderate, et cetera. What is the link between that and 30-year yields or the long end of the curve? Because of course Mm -hmm. I get it. The short end, it's very easy to draw a very bright line between short-term rate expectations and the two-year bond or whatever. But then when you get further out, it's like, okay, why does the growth picking up in Q4 of 2023 affect what people are going to pay for a bond that matures in the 2050s or whatever? No, I think there still is some sensitivity of policy that sort of reverberates through the the term structure. And the sensitivity may decline the further out you go, but it's still there. So just for a number, you know, every 100 basis point change in Fed policy expectations three to six months forward tends to sort of change long-term yields by about 40 to 45 basis points. And similarly, like every change in year-ahead growth expectations tends to move long-term yields by five to 10 basis points. So yeah, the further you go out the term structure, the more, I think, idiosyncratic it becomes. But Mm -hmm. there still is sensitivity to what's happening to the underlying economy and to what's happening with Fed policy. So I think it's still there, just with a lower sensitivity than at the very short end. How do you actually go about, as a strategist, 
sort of decomposing mm-hmm. the different moves into different factors or drivers. And I know that you have at JP Morgan, for instance, this fair value model of where you think treasuries should be trading. And I think last week you were saying that you thought that yields had overshot fair value, which, you know, I'm guessing you didn't expect what happened over the weekend in Israel to actually happen. But it seems to have been quite prescient because we have seen yields come down a little bit. But how are you actually analyzing the different drivers Mm. of a move in rates? Yeah. So you've talked about the fair value model. I think that's a key input to what we do because we try to identify empirically what have been the largest drivers of yields over time. And we can look back over windows of five or 10 or 15 years. And we've got a host of factors that are sort of always consistently in the framework. And we talked about Fed policy, growth, and inflation expectations being the three key drivers, like the triumvirate, so to speak. And then other factors, which at various points over the last you know 10 to 15 years have been important and less important. I mean, there was a time when with policy rates at zero and negative territory globally, we had the share of the bond universe that was trading at a negative yield globally because policy rates being anchored at very low levels helped anchor U.S. rates lower. And that was important, but less important right now. So that starts. And you know, if we have a sort of centering universe about where we think Fed policy growth and inflation are headed, that's a starting point. And mm-hmm. you're right. Like When we adjusted for those factors, there was a point last week where it looked like we were trading about 35 or 40 basis points too high, where you know, you're talking about standard deviations before. That was hmm. something like a two and a half standard deviation move relative to fair value in our framework, and one which we hadn't seen since this time last fall after the UK LDI crisis. Right, which was the, the other big bond sell-off. Yeah. And really since the spring of 2020, too. So I think you know we take notice of that because it's hard to say you know, I think we've all been pretty humble to the fact that the economy has been resilient. It's been tough to call, but we yeah. have to have something that sort of centers like where should rates be and how far have they gone? And this was at least a flag to us that they'd gone too far. You mentioned sort of factors driving the U.S. Treasury price and how those have evolved over time. Can you spell that out in a little bit more detail? Mm. Like, I would be very curious to to hear more about what is driving moves now mm-hmm. versus, say, maybe pre-2020. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, pre-2020, we just briefly talked about one of those factors. Low and negative policy rates elsewhere meant that even as the U.S. was increasing rates during the 2015 through 2018 cycle, that was something that helped anchor long-term yields at lower levels. And you could see the influence there when you talk about the, the hedged yield pickup for U.S. bonds for versus most foreign currency pairs. And that has since, of course, eroded because Basically, every every major developed market central bank has been increasing policy rates at a rapid rate. And the last of which that's out there, the Bank of Japan, we think at some point will completely lose its YCC um, band and will at some point exit negative interest rate policy next year. So that was an important factor, which we now don't have as a factor in the model. The Bank of Japan, it was like about a month and a half ago or two months ago, like sometime in August. I forget because I I have have to admit, like all these Bank of Japan headlines about – whether they're going to like keep the 10 years zero or whatever. Like they all sort of blur. But there was like some news that happened. It was something out of the Bank of Japan that like changed the entire tenor of the market all at once. Can you remind me what I'm like forgetting here? Yeah, Joe, in late July, um, the Bank of Japan basically allowed JGBs in the 10-year sector to try trade even wider around its sort of plus or minus 50 basis point target and effectively kind of gave you notice that at some point it was getting closer to completely removing that YCC. Because they're having their highest inflation in years too, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, I mean, I think on a partial basis, you can argue that was a catalyst as well. 
Can you talk about when you talk about these foreign buyers? As you say, this sort of like price insensitive demand mm-hmm. from a foreign sector. The disappearance of these price insensitive foreign buyers. How much does that affect rates versus, say, just like rates volatility? By the way, this is why I really wanted to get Jay on for this podcast, because he wrote a great note about a year ago, basically talking about the retreat of price insensitive buyers in the form of foreign central banks and the Fed as well as it was winding down its balance sheet. I think I wrote it up under the headline, JP Morgan is worried about who's going to buy all the bonds. And at the time, it got a lot of pushback. But fast forward a year. And again, it seems like you were broadly directionally correct. No, I think it's an important driver over a longer period of time. Like it's hard to say, and Tracy, you said this before, like whether it's the proximate cause of the sell-off. But I think in the background, it's something that's contributing to what's going on because to us at J.P. Morgan, you know, we look at three sets of buyers who have been the main price insensitive sources of demand for the better part of the past two decades at various points. And you talk about the foreign demand story. I mean, we know that FX reserves peaked about seven or eight years ago. The dollar share of those reserves have been coming down. But there was a point in time at the beginning of the century where FX reserves were growing so rapidly and the share of those reserves held in dollars were so rapidly that the deposit of that savings into the U.S. I think was something that kept long-term rates low. And you remember Chair Greenspan talking about this and the, the conundrum in 2005 about why long-term rates were not rising, even as the Fed was tightening. So that's a key driver right there. And we look at it, FX reserves, we don't really expect to grow appreciably from here. And we're not in the de-dollarization camp, but the dollar share of those reserves have been on a downward trend as central banks globally have been diversifying. So it's just saying that if that was a tailwind for rates for the better part of the first half of this, you know, last 20 years, Mm. it's not there. The second one And this was more local or the U.S. banks where they bought about three quarters of a trillion of treasuries over 2020 and 2021 when supply was heavy, largely due to the fact that deposit growth outstripped loan growth. And now we know deposits have stopped coming down like they did in the spring, but they're not growing. And I think one would think even as deposit growth picks up that banks after what's happened here might, generally speaking, bias their purchases shorter along the yield curve, which with less duration risk. Mm. And then the final piece of the puzzle is the Fed. And I think we lose this, that even though we're coming to the end of the Fed policy rate tightening cycle, where we think it's actually concluded, balance sheet policy is operating in the background. And just as the BOJ, Joe, was really important at the end of July, I think Chair Powell's comments at the July press conference were as equally important because a reporter asked him about whether the Fed could continue to do QT while it actually lowers interest rates as inflation comes Mm. down next year. And he made the point that you'd be normalizing both. The policy levers may be in opposition, but you're normalizing the balance sheet as you're normalizing rates. And I think the extended runway for QT matters because we found over a longer period of time, the Fed's stock of holdings matters for yield levels. Hmm. Um, and as that unwinds, that should slowly keep long-term rates anchored at higher levels and re-steepen yield curves. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. 
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you have these longer term factors, I guess, happening in the background, the retreat of these three groups of price insensitive buyers. Just going back to some of the short term catalysts here, you know, we mentioned term premium in the intro. Term premium is one of those concepts. I feel like it gets bandied around quite a lot. Not everyone quite understands what it means, but also <clears throat> there is no <clears throat> consensus. Like myself. <laughs> but I'm, gonna, I'm about to learn something that I've always been wondering But about. see, you're missing out, Joe, because you should just start saying term premium. Just blame everything on the term premium and just use it as a scapegoat for any oh, yeah. like any move, move that you get. don't agree with or that you are on the wrong side of. That's how most people seem to use it. <laughs> but okay. Maybe just to begin with, what is the term premium and what has happened to it in recent weeks? Yeah, so the term premium, and you're right, it's a nebulous term, I think, is the extra compensation required for investors to buy longer duration assets. That is a perfect definition that I'm pretty sure I have used in my own copy before. <laughs> I just made sure I Googled it before I came up. <laughs> no, um, but I, I think there's a number of ways to look at it. And I think we can start and just talk about our fair value framework. And I think we can say everything outside of these fundamental drivers, one might possibly attribute to term premium that in the absence of being able to explain with growth and inflation and Fed policy expectations that that's a driver there. There's also a series of very widely watched academic models. There's the ACM model from the New York Fed the Kim Wright model that the Federal Reserve Board in D.C. watches, which are a series of, I think, no arbitrage term structure models, which are kind of mean reverting in nature. And those were, were sitting relatively low until recently. And they actually would attribute most of the sell-off over the past six weeks to term premium. You know, I think we've done a paper on this, and we think that there's some idiosyncrasies with the way that these models are constructed because mm. they are sampled over a period of declining rates that they attribute yeah. a lot more to changes in policy expectations oh, than term premium. Yeah. So it turns they can be less sort of influential or less, I think, insightful. They're still very valuable, just not less insightful at these turns. And then there's finally more empirical ways to measure it too, because there's survey-based measures of where economists expect policy rates to be, like the survey of professional forecasters yeah. and the survey of primary dealers, where you can observe where Economists think policy rates will be over the next five to 10 years, and you can compare them to 10-year rates to get a sense of the extra compensation that's required. Right. So this is the key, right, because the basic idea is a long rate is just a series of overnight rates. And so the, that gap, if you have some estimate of where the overnight rates are going to be over the next 10 years, then you look at the yield, then theoretically – that gap is the term the premium. premium. Exactly. Can you talk about sentiment? And you know, yeah. it strikes me, Tracy, that we were recording this basically literally a month after we interviewed the bond king Bill Gross, in which he said he doesn't own any bonds. Mm. And so it really strikes me that was like, well, people hate bonds right now. <laughs> like people really hate them, and everyone like in that month since we talked about. It, first of all, when we had that conversation, the tenure was closer to four point two percent. So very timely call. But you know, in that month. I do not recall. There's so much talk about the deficit. There's so much talk about what all of these things, higher inflation, higher for longer. We can't get it, get it under control. Like, what, 
how do you measure sentiment and how much does that drive some of these moves? I, I'm glad you asked that, Joe, because I think it can be really influential over shorter periods of time, yeah. say four to six weeks. So there's a host of metrics that we like to watch um, from the CFTC's data on sort of speculative positioning and interest rate futures, some more empirical models that sort of track the performance of hedge funds and asset <clears throat> managers. But my favorite, and it's very close to my heart because it's been something I've been working with for like more than two decades, is our weekly JP Morgan Treasury client survey. Hmm. It's a bit of a misnomer because it's really our duration survey of the aggregate exposure of our rates franchise. And every week, we ask the same number of clients in our franchise whether they're long, neutral, or short hmm. um, duration, either outright or relative to benchmark. And we found that when that measure sort of moves very sharply away from average levels, it can have a mean reverting effect on yields the opposite direction. So you talk about sentiment. Right. I think everyone through the spring and summer was trying to handicap when the Fed would be done raising rates, thinking the next move is going on hold, which would be the precursor to rates moving lower. And our survey back in July and August was as long as it had been in over a decade. And it gave you a signal huh. that over the next five to six weeks, there could be some risk that rates move higher on a systematic basis. And that's what we've had. Now, walk that forward, and our latest survey, which is about a week old right now, is back at its most neutral level since April. Hmm. So I get the sense that perhaps part of this move over and above the fundamentals could be investors reassessing those duration positions as we've priced higher for longer, where you talk about the supply dynamic here at work, maybe that's in the background against the backdrop of large deficits. But I think sentiment is a really large driver over shorter periods of time. So two questions on that. One, there has been this argument that as yields go up and prices go down, you are going to see some maybe buy the dip buyers start to come in and support the market. So one, would you expect that to happen? And then two, on the duration portion of it, like how much appetite is there for duration structurally in the financial system nowadays? And I guess a simpler way of asking that is why buy a bond at all, especially at a time, you know, what I understand maybe you're a pension fund and you have long liabilities and you're trying to match them or something like that. But on the other hand, you do have the Fed really taking a harsh look or a harsher look at duration risk, telling banks, big buyers of bonds, as we were discussing earlier, that they are going to be looking at interest rate exposure and things like that. So what is the attraction of bonds at all in the current market? No, I think that's a, a great question. And I mean, bonds are an investment alternative that are viable for the first time in 15 or 16 years here, right? I mean, you talked about it, about the opening treasury yields hitting, you know, pre-GFC highs across yeah. the curve. You know, aggregate fixed income yields for like an aggregate fixed income bond index are probably still close to 6% right now. And so I think that's a viable investment alternative just for a broadly diversified portfolio. So I think that means there's probably a pool of asset managers that could have demand for bonds over time. But I think that's only one piece of the puzzle because it takes, you know, a very attractive yield level, which we've got, but also it, tra it takes sort of more stable returns. Right. And you started to see that at the beginning of the year when yields started to stabilize in funds, inflows, excuse me, into bond funds started to accelerate. Hmm. But that sort of petered back when volatility began to pick up. And because now year to date, we've got fixed income returns negative for the third consecutive year. So perversely, I think it's a little bit of like a chicken and egg. You need the attractive yields, but you need stable returns as well. And we haven't gotten that yet with the speed of the backup, but it's been talked about a lot. I mean, you look at the the money in government and treasury money market funds, it's over four and a half trillion dollars. And that obviously increased as bank deposits were falling earlier this year. But I think there's reasons to think that as yields stabilize and you consider the Fed on hold, there's room for that money to extend out along the curve. 
So that's one big buyer right mm-hmm. there. I think the others that we've looked to in the past are the U.S. pension fund community, defined benefit in nature, and that's a $3.5 trillion universe, an AUM. Their funded ratios are above 100% really sustainably for the first time since the financial crisis. And their fixed income asset allocation has been rising for the past decade plus. I think they had an existential moment back in 2011-12 when funded ratios were well under 100% and their fixed income asset allocation was only something like 35% for managing a longer duration liability. Hmm. But it's now over 50%. And one would think that there's probably more room for demand there. But again, I think... The nature and speed of these moves mean that most active investors who have, I think, more leniency before they add duration are sitting back waiting to see sort of vol recede first. Hmm. That's interesting that the upside of this violent bond sell-off might be pension funds being sort of fully funded for the first time in a long time. But on that note, so one thing you often hear in the bond community is that drawdowns don't necessarily matter or, you know, prices are going down, but these are mark to market moves and, you know, your yield is going up at the same time. And so what does it matter if the mark to market is going down? Because eventually you would expect to get all your money back from the U.S. Treasury. Is that a a viable claim or, you know, is it possible for everyone to look through these violent moves? Or I guess another way of asking it is, at what point do these become more of an issue? Mm. So I think you you should be able to look through them, but for more active managers who are managing versus a benchmark, I mean, we can look at series of returns on a weekly or a monthly basis and see how those various funds are doing relative to their peers. So I think, you know, there is some psychology to not deviate too far away from where average excess returns are are Mm. headed. And I think that's important because excess returns over and above index, which index being negative for the last three years, excess returns for the asset manager community have been on the average pretty challenging the last couple of years. So I think there is a degree of sensitivity there. So I think that's sort of an impactful story there, which means that there is some sort of psychology, particularly as the fundamentals are shifting to kind of neutralize your positions more quickly, even though you may be able to look through it. And then there's a separate story about flows, which Mm. is over and above the existing stock of AUM you've got that you probably need to see returns stabilize before you see incremental inflows from investors Uh. out of money market funds or out of other asset classes into fixed income as well. Can we talk a little bit more about supply? I mean, we talked about the demand or the lack of the price-insensitive demand. It really feels to me like awareness of deficit. People always talk about deficits and high deficits, but it really feels to me like focus on deficits really in the last like month or so reached some like fever pitch. When you talk to clients, do you notice that as well, like just a lot of conversation about deficits? Joe, I haven't had as many conversations about deficits and treasury supply over my, I think, most of my career as versus what I've had the last couple of months. So it's it's hit a fever pitch. And so how do you think about deficits Mm -hmm. as a driver or like decompose like the supply side when you talk to like attributing aspects of this rate move? Yeah, I mean, I think supply matters in the context of that demand that we were just talking about. And there's a big shift that's happening. But to your point, I haven't learned anything incrementally new over the past six weeks or so that I didn't know um, a few months ago. And I think we've known that deficits over the next 10 years are expected to be wide for some time. Yeah. And maybe you can say incrementally the last couple of months because yields have risen, the expectations over interest expense at the federal level are right. higher, thus even adding to that pressure. But I think people look at the Treasury's quarterly refunding announcement on August 1st as being a seminal driver there where the Treasury made and announced a series of pretty large increases to coupon auction sizes, the first since the pandemic era. And 
sort of foreshadowed to the bond community that these were likely to continue for a number of quarters at a time. That's been on our minds for some time. Like yeah. our issuance forecasts for some time have been calling for a pretty sharp well, like, increase. So, in like anyone who was plugged in saw that was saw these coming. But I think maybe the fact that it was like you know the whites of the treasury's eyes yeah, yeah, and yeah. actually seeing it mattered. But it's large, yeah. um, and I think we think coupon issuance in treasuries is going to double next year from this year, and in duration terms, you know we think we're running about two point three trillion in ten year treasury equivalents this year. We're probably going to issue about three trillion in ten-year equivalents next year. So wow. it's a thirty-five percent increase huh. in duration supply into next year, and I think it matters because deficits as a share of GDP are larger now with the economy sitting above trend and growth and the unemployment rate sitting well below four percent. That I think just in the background there's concerns that when there's a downturn, how big will these deficits be? Yeah. So we are recording this on October 10th, and the benchmark yield on the 10-year Treasury is down from, I think it was like 4.87% last week. It's now at 4.6%, partly because of this flight to safety that we've seen. Pulling it all together, you know, we talked about the long-term factors here, including the decline of price-insensitive buyers, booming supply, some of the short-term technicals. What's your outlook going into 2024. And I guess I don't mean to sound mean or incredulous when I say this, but like, how can you have any certainty at this point about what's going to happen when what we've seen for the past year is this continued defiance of expectations? No, I think there's a lot of humility there, because if we had sat here, you know, nine to 10 months ago and talked about the outlook for 2023, we would not have pegged 10-year yield sitting at 462 like they are right now. But as I think ahead and I look into the end of this year in 2024, let's think about the economy. And again, we're not in the recessionary camp, but we see and we forecast growth moving below trend under the weight of the shift in policy rates that we've had, but also because there's other incremental factors with higher energy prices, with the beginning of student loan repayments coming back, to right. think that growth will be slower next year than it was this year. We think Fed policy is likely at a standing point with respect to policy rates that it's on hold, which is typically something over a longer period of time that's been supportive of yields stabilizing. And we think inflation is coming down, but coming down very slowly. So we've had a very strong disinflationary impulse the last three months. We think that's probably past its peak and that the journey from 3% annualized inflation to 2% is going to take some time. So the Fed's probably done tightening. But we think the Fed's also on hold for the next 10 or 11 months or mm -hmm. so, all the while QT is still going on in the background. So I think we can historically go back and look at the end of Fed tightening periods as being very positive for yields peaking and coming back down. But I think these are the reasons a Fed on hold for longer, while balance sheet policy is still kind of sitting in the background working, and not just in the US, but globally too, because mm -hmm. the ECB and the Bank of England are doing QT, and one would think that the Bank of Chan Japan might have to defend its purchases or its YCC target less forcefully as well. This is something that's going to keep rates elevated for a longer period of time versus what we've seen in prior Fed on hold periods, particularly when inflation remains above the Fed's 2% target. So we see scope if there's some mean reversion here, back to our model fair value for rates to fall about 30 basis points. But beyond that, I think it's a struggle to think that yields will be much lower if the Fed's on hold, but QT is going on and inflation's coming down, but we're past the peak of the disinflationary impulse that we've had. Yeah, this was kind of Austin Goolsby's point as well, that, you know, even a hold is kind of a continued tightening of financial conditions. Jay Barry, thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Appreciate you doing this at relatively short notice. Tracy, Joe, thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. That was great. 
So, Joe, I thought that was a really good overview of all these different factors going into the sell-off at the moment. And it does seem kind of complicated. And there is still this this overarching question, I think, over the timing Mm -hmm. and the past two weeks. And like, yes, the dots moved slightly higher, but was that really enough to spark like this big, almost historic sell-off that we've seen in bonds? I think to Jay's point, it does feel like there are some more technical aspects that might be driving it. You know, there were a couple of things that stood out to those technical points, like his observation about sentiment and the fact that, you know, up until basically July, up until maybe July, middle of August, everyone was thinking like, oh, the peak was in, you know, inflation is going to come down. And so there was just this sort of long treasury bid. It's interesting that, uh, you know, he sort of confirmed my hunch that there's just been this like real big pickup in like deficit talk the way we haven't seen in a while. Anyway, I I really, I found that to be a very helpful conversation. Yeah. It's kind of funny to think that like everyone woke up on like October 5th and decided to become a bond vigilante, but they didn't like, they didn't feel like that a month or two ago. I mean, we knew like about the trillions in deficits for, you know, as far as the eye can see, but it, it does, you know, it is weird, right? There hasn't been a ton of new information between, you know, whatever that recent peak was on Friday and a month before. But I do think it was sort of like that month, basically, between our Bill Gross interview and now, like it just the amount of negativity and, and the intensity of hatred towards bonds just seemed to get wild. The Bond King called it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And thank you to our producer, Moses Anda. For more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts. We have a blog and a newsletter. And you can chat with fellow fans 24-7 in our Discord, discord.gg slash Odd Lots. And if you enjoy Odd Lots, if you like it when we delve into the technical aspects of the treasury market, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.